0: Well, Good evening, church. Let's try it again. Good evening, church. I want to thank you for joining us here tonight to commemorate this Good Friday service time where we have to be able to really remember the precious sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, This is something that was uh, on my heart today, and and I just want to, again, thank you for coming tonight because uh, there is this tendency that I see in our world happening today where we are often remembering days and people and events, and so many different uh, holidays have been established here in our nation, and yet here we are as a nation failing to recognize the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but yet here we are as a church who are gathering together to do just that, and so again, thank you for gathering here tonight with us. As Pastor Richard has just read, we all are familiar with the narrative of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that the man Jesus Christ was led to the cross. He was led to carry his cross and to be crucified on Calvary. We are familiar with the fact that he was the one who took our place, the one who died on the cross in order that we would have forgiveness of our sins. We are familiar with the fact that he was sinless. We are familiar with the fact that he himself took our place, the penal substitutionary atonement that he himself wrought on our behalf. We are familiar with the fact that because of our essence, which is totally sinful, our nature is a nature that is encompassed with sin, and we had rebelled against God, that the God-man took our place. He substituted himself for us in order that by his stripes we would be healed. We're familiar with the narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet tonight what I want us to do is to turn to a passage in Scripture which does not uh, really consider the narrative of the sacrifice of Christ, but rather it considers the theology behind why Jesus had to die. It considers the counsel of God as to why it was the case that Jesus needed to die on behalf for our sins. Why Jesus himself, the perfect Son of God, why was it that he came to this earth in order that he would be able to bring about total forgiveness of sins? Could there have been another way? Could God have just overlooked sin? Could God have said, you know, I'm just going to forgive these people's sins. I'm not going to consider them any longer, and uh, that will be that. Could that have been the case? Well, as we will see in Hebrews, we must understand that Christ came ultimately to do the Father's will. The Father had, had uh, planned that there would be a redeemed people of His who He had elected from before the foundation of the world. And Christ was the willing substitute who would come in order to appease the Father's wrath against sin and bring us into a right relationship with Him. And so tonight we come to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to verse 28, where again we see the theology of why it was that Jesus had to die. And beyond that, what we will also will consider, the question that ultimately will come following that, was Jesus' sacrifice effectual? Meaning, was Jesus' sacrifice once and for all, or do I have to insert myself in any way, shape, or form in order to ensure that Christ's sacrifice can be perfectly applied on my behalf? So these two questions are what we will consider tonight, and our answers are found really most definitively here in our passage here in, nine, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to verse 28, and I'll read it as follows. "'Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established.' For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before Your Word with an expectancy to be able to gain a deeper understanding as to why it was Christ had to come and to die on the cross for our sins, why You made it of a necessity that, that the sacrifice of Christ was the only way in which You would, appease, you would be appeased uh, towards us and, and our sinfulness against You. God, we do thank you that you have made this way possible for us. We do thank you that by the blood of your precious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven through our faith in him. But, God, we also tonight come eagerly seeking to understand why it was that this was necessary. And not so much that we are holding you accountable, but rather, God, that we are simply just seeking to understand how you operate, Lord. How it was that you saw fit to bring about the redemption of us, your people, how it is that you saw fit to, to, to send your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth in order that through his own sacrifice, through his redeeming power, which he alone could bring about, would, would come to save us from our sins. God, we draw near to you now to grow deeper in our great understanding of what it is that you have done for us on our behalf. And we thank you that not only have you done this for us on our behalf, that, that you have substituted yourself in our place. That, 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 what, that which we could not ever have brought about, God, You have brought about through the once and for all sacrifice of Your Son, and we are so privileged to be able to enter into the very counsel of Your Word in order that we would be able to understand just exactly why it was Christ had to die and also to be encouraged by the finality of His sacrifice. We ask You would guide us tonight, God, by Your Spirit in order that we would understand these deeply profound truths. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, the cross of Christ has always proved a stumbling block to those who believe. This is not anything new. We often, as we share the gospel and we learn of people who are saying, you know, Jesus had to die, yeah, right. Oh, Jesus died? Sure, I'll believe that when I see that. The stumbling stumbling block for all people has always been the cross. It has always been Christ and Him crucified, which has been a barrier for people to be able to realize that they have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that the only way that they could receive the promised forgiveness that God has offered is by faith in what Christ Himself has done. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, "...but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles." For the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block in the sense that they cannot imagine a suffering Messiah. They could not understand how the One who was going to come and to rule over all creation, the One who was God's only Son, the One who God had enthroned on high and seated at His right hand, they could not understand how the Messiah would have to suffer and die in their place. Indeed, in their own law, it says in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, it is a hangman who is cursed by God. And so as they see the cross of Christ, as they see Christ supposedly who their Messiah is hanging on the cross, they see Him as not a man sent by God, but rather a man who has been cursed by God. And yet what we see in the New Testament Scripture is that Christ Himself was indeed made a curse for us in order that He would defeat the effects of sin on our behalf. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now to the Gentile, this is folly, the fact of Christ and Him crucified, in the fact that there are those who are Gentiles. A Gentile is someone who is outside of, of uh, God's revelatory word. They don't know of God. They, they've never heard of what God has said. They are kind of living in the world. They are individuals who are just not concerned with God. And, and for them, this cross is folly because in one sense, They don't even see a need for forgiveness. And so they would say, why do I need to have my sins forgiven if I myself am not a sinner? They have no concept or reality of the fact that they are separated from God. And so the cross is foolishness to them. Why would someone have to die for me? I've not done anything wrong. But still, in another sense, those who do realize that they have done something wrong would also see the cross and say, how could one man's death atone not only for my sins but also the sins of all who have placed their faith in the one who died in their place? It's folly to the Gentiles, and it's foolishness to the Jews, and this is nothing new. This is something that is happening even in our day as well. To some, the cross of Christ was a, a plot, a schemed up in which individuals said they were going to bring Christ to the cross, but before Christ was actually brought to the cross, the disciples schemed up such a way that they put an imposter in His place, and therefore Christ was never crucified on the cross. They surmised that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. Instead, He was, uh, had an imposter in His place, and, and He lived out His life somewhere else only to die, and then later on, their prophet Muhammad would come, and He would be the one who would be the revelatory word for the Muslims. There are those who deny the cross of Christ because it does not fit their theology. Still, there are those who deny the efficacy of the cross of Christ. They would agree that Jesus was sacrificed that day, but in that Jesus is a high priest and in that He is a high priest forever, His sacrifice is perpetually continuing. It is a sacrifice which was not once and for all, but rather it was a sacrifice which effects are continually doled out through the perpetual sacrifice of the Sunday Mass which happens during the Catholic Church. This is why Christ is always still on the cross, because they believe that Christ is perpetually being sacrificed in order that the sins that these people have continually fallen victim to are continually being able to be forgiven. Others still will view the act of God crucifying His Son on the cross for our sins as an act of cosmic child abuse. They say, how could a loving God call for His Son to be suffering in the place of individuals who alone are worthy of God's wrath? Christ was sinless. He was perfect. How could God pour out His wrath upon His innocent Son? There are many within the evangelical church who have this sort of theology. And what's interesting is that in all of these, I have mentioned individuals who see the cross as folly, not in the sense that they deny that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but rather they deny the effects of it. They deny the purpose behind it. They deny the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, it was not as if He was being abused by His Father, but rather this was the ordained plan of God from before the foundation of the world in which our triune God considered amongst Himself in order that He would be able to bring about the promised redemption for our sins. You see, individuals will look to the cross of Christ and see it as as folly. Even though they may respect some of its validity, they see it as folly, and they ultimately end up discrediting its effects effects in totality. You see, all of us, when we come to the narrative reading the crucifixion of Christ, many of us will be able to come to our own conclusions. You read the narrative accounts and you say, well, this is what has happened here, and and, you know, this is my view of the cross of Christ, and this is their view of the cross of Christ, and, and a number of different opinions are formed. But you see, we must not allow for our conclusions to diagnose what is actually the truth. Rather, our conclusions must come to uh, agreement with the conclusions of God. And not in the sense that we need to agree with God in order for God to be right, but rather because God is always true, because God's Word is absolutely truth, if our conclusions on the cross of Christ do not act, up, act in accordance with what God has said concerning the cross of Christ, well, then we are wrong on the subject. You see, rather than considering what other people have said about what the cross of Christ accomplished, we must come to understand what God Himself has said concerning what the cross of Christ has accomplished. And we must surrender our own thoughts, our own purposes, our own desires, or even our own traditions about what the cross of Christ accomplished. And we must lay them all at the foot of God's Word in order that God would be able to speak to us into what exactly it was the cross of Christ brought about. You see, we must understand the theology of the cross. We must understand why God would send His Son to the cross to die in our place in order that we could have the forgiveness of our sins. That God was not acting disorderly, that God was not acting, you know, surprised because man sinned and he wasn't prepared and so he just kind of acted irrationally. God did not do that. God does not act in that way, but rather God in his foreplan or his foreordained knowledge planned before the foundation of the world that the lamb would be slain, that Jesus Christ would come and die in order that man's redemption would be purchased. You see, that is the, uh, uh, answers that, the answers that we seek to find concerning the theology of, of why Jesus had to die really are summarized here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, all the way into verse 28. If we ask ourselves, why did Jesus have to die? And on top of that, was Jesus' sacrifice effectual on my behalf? We must consider what God Himself has said concerning the subject. We must consider why it was that God had said Jesus needed to die on the cross for our sins. And we must understand how God received the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, in order to prove its efficacy. It is not just something which says, well, people say that God approved of His sacrifice. No, it is the fact that Jesus Himself, and we will see, has gone into the very presence of the Father, offering up Himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and God has accepted His sacrifice saying, well done, this is My Son, you must listen to Him. You say, why did Jesus have to die, and how effectual was his death on my behalf? Well, we see the answers here in the passage before us here in Hebrews chapter 9. And in short, what we can say is the reason that Jesus had to die was because God required it, and to the second we can say that Jesus' offering of himself brought about total forgiveness. God required this sacrifice, and Jesus' sacrifice brought about absolute, total forgiveness. Jesus himself indeed has paid it all. Now, to go back a bit further, we must understand the necessity of what brought all of this about. We must understand that the cross of Christ needed to be realized in the fact that man had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result, now man stood under the wrath and condemnation of God because God must punish sin. God in the garden had given strict requirements to the man and the woman not to eat of the fruit. And if they were to do so, what would happen was the soul that ate of that fruit would surely die. And not just a physical death, but rather an eternal death where they would be continuously separated from the presence of God forever and ever, standing under His wrath and condemnation as punishment for their sins. God, in order that He would be able to bring about the promised forgiveness, saw it as a necessity that the cross of Christ must come into fruition because of the necessity that was before Him in that He must punish sin. Man needed a, needed a Savior, and therefore Christ was needing to be the promised substitute. Now before we get ahead of ourselves here and think, well, I must have been owed salvation here. You know, God said I'm going to redeem people from their sins. God owes me this salvation. Before we get ahead of ourselves here, we must understand that God would have been perfectly just if He decided upon the sin of Adam and Eve to crush them without delay. You see, when the angels sinned, and we learn of the angels' fall in a couple of places in Scripture, when the angels sinned, God did not give them a second chance. In fact, when the angels sinned, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 tells us God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. God could have very well treated us in that same way. Why? Because God is just. Because God is holy and He is righteous. And if He calls for us to do something, we as His subjects, we as His creation are called to be responsible unto Him. We are called to respect what God himself has said in order that we do not find ourselves outside of his loving kindness, outside of his loving kindness and under his wrath and condemnation. You see, God could have very well redeemed mankind from their sins. He would redeem mankind from their sins, but this would not come without a cost. There would be a high cost which would need to be paid, namely there would need to be enmity placed between man and sin, between man and Satan, and that enmity which was promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 ended up being our Lord Jesus Christ who came to redeem us from our sins. You see, God in His great love towards us willed that He would redeem us from our sins, but in His justice this could not come without a high, high price. You say, why? Why? Well, because God in His love cannot overlook the fact that He is also a God who is just. And for those who think that God in His love could just simply walk over sin and forget about it totally and completely, deny the fact that God Himself, if He were to do that, would not have been just. You see, if God just overlooked sin and said, okay, you sinned, don't worry about it, just continue living your life however you want, I'm just going to you know, let you do what you want, and I won't ever get mad at you, I won't ever be condemning you, I never will have my wrath poured out over you. If God were to have done that, God would have not been just. And so therefore, what we note of the cross of Christ is that in the cross of Christ, we see both the love of God and the justice of God on full display working together in order to bring about our redemption. You see, the cross of Christ not only displays the love of our great God, but it also displays His great justice. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 to 25 says, "...we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show, to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins." And so God in the cross of Christ needed needed to prove his justice needed to prove his righteousness and so when Christ went to the cross it was not only out of his great love for us but it was also out of the justice of God that made it necessary Now, turning to the book of Hebrews again, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to verse 22, we see that the necessity of Christ dying on the cross for our sins played a part in the fact that if God was not to require a sacrifice for sins, not only would He be unjust, but also there is this fact that the new covenant would not have been able to become ratified. Not only is the justice of God on full display in the the, uh, uh, wrath of him being poured out upon his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, but we also see in the cross of Christ that the new covenant was able to be mediated because there is nothing, there is no covenant that could ever be mediated without the shedding of blood. This is the point that the author of Hebrews is going to make for us. You say, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? Well, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews 9 verse 26 or 22 rather and what's interesting to note here is we consider why jesus had to die we're considering it from a viewpoint in which we do not consider it all that often we often consider the effects of christ's death on our behalf the effects of Christ's death were Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins, and by faith we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we are saved. Tonight we're not going to consider it in that way, but rather we are going to consider the accomplishment that Christ made in the presence of the Father. Not considering ourselves with, you know, okay, am I saved because of this, but rather, what did Christ have to do? What subjection of Christ, what, 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 uh, what subjection did Christ place Himself under in order to bring about the promised forgiveness of our sins? It's very important that we consider this, for in it we see how God purchased our redemption by Himself, totally, totally without the help of any one of us. And so why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? In uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to 22, we read of it here. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, I know that it is a lot and I know that it is something that we do not often consider. And so if all that you get from what I exposit here before you in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 to verse 22 is the fact that God required that Christ die on the cross for our sins in order to bring about the promised new covenant, that is enough although it goes much deeper than that. You see, in effect, what we can say as to why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins, it is simply that God required this to be done. God required it. Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins for any other reason other than the fact that the Father required that this was the only way in which forgiveness of sins was able to be purchased. We see this quite practically stated in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You say, why was this the plan of God? Why could God not have just said, all is forgiven? Why could not God have overlooked sin? Why not just do that? God's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's omniscient. God's God. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. God, you know, if God acted in any way that he wanted, he would not have to answer to anyone, and so therefore he could have simply said, there is no need for a forgiveness of sins that is necessary. I'm not upset with you for the sins in which you have done. He could have said that, and people say, God could have just done that. It would have been so much easier. But God wanting to, you know, show his, uh, his great uh, g- glory and holiness and all of these things, you know, co- so concerned with himself, he had to send his son to die. People often lamented the fact that God did it in this way, but you see, God was only acting in accordance with His justice in bringing this about. You see, Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins because sin demands a punishment. God had said that the soul that eats of this fruit shall surely die, and God who is, one, is one who keeps his promises. Therefore, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, death entered into this world. Sin and death entered into this world, and God was going to keep his promise that anyone who would have sinned would have fallen short of his glory, and the wages of their sin would be death, and they would be condemned to stand under eternity in, in eternity in hell under his wrath. That was the promise that God was going to bring to completion. God is holy and he demands, he demands a punishment for our sins. His justice demanded Christ's death on the cross for our sins. But you see, in His great love for us, He also planned our redemption the very moment mankind sinned. You see, God has promised that all who have sinned and have fallen short of His glory of God will stand under His condemnation and wrath for all of eternity. And God is perfectly just in doing that because He Himself is holy and cannot be stained by the presence of sin. But God in His infinite love shown towards us as His creation has made a way in which He would be able to redeem us from our sinfulness. God has said, yes, I am going to punish sin, I am just, I am holy, I am righteous, and I am pure, but I am also a God who loves, and it is because of my great love that I am going to will that the people who I choose will have their sins forgiven, and I will remember their sins no more. This goes to the covenant promise that God made through the prophet Jeremiah back in Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're unfamiliar with Jeremiah 31, you can just turn one page over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, where we have Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, which is the promised new covenant that God gave through the prophet Jeremiah. We have it restated here in Hebrews. You see, God, in His promised plan of redemption to redeem people from their sins, promised through a covenant that He made with the people of Israel, which would also be applied on behalf of all who would believe that He would one day bring about total forgiveness. God would bring about total forgiveness. And what he says here in Hebrews 8, verse 8, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." You see, what God has said in the bringing about of this covenant is that through the new covenant's uh, uh, inauguration, he would, know pe- he would know His people and His people would know Him. Literally, His Spirit would come and reside in, the, in, his, in His covenant people, those who He had set apart before the foundation of the world. And on top of that, He would bring about total forgiveness towards these people's sins. With this covenant, God promised man's promised redemption. In effect, what God said is man will be reconciled unto himself, since their sins will be forgiven and remembered no more. But for this to occur, it needed, it needed, it was required that a sacrifice for sins would be had in order for the new covenant to be brought about. And this goes back to the old covenant system itself. You see, God cannot act opposite of his own revealed will throughout his word. God is unchanging. God does as he does, and he does not change from that. And it is required that for a covenant to be brought about or a will to be enacted, that a death must occur. That blood must be shed in order that this covenant will be brought into completion. Therefore, in order for God to bring about the promised new covenant, there needed to be a sacrifice. God could not just say, I'm going to make this new covenant with you and voila, it's going to happen. No, there was something that needed to take place definitively in order that the new covenant would be able to be brought about. In short, Christ had to shed his blood and die to bring about the promised new covenant. And as verse 15 makes clear, this is exactly what Christ, as our great high priest, has done. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, putting it quite bluntly here, Christ Himself both was the guarantor of this covenant and He also mediates the covenant blessings on our behalf. Christ, on our, as our great high priest, is the one who has both brought this covenant into inauguration and also, since He ever lives as our great high priest, He always lives to intercede on our behalf and mediate these new covenant blessings in which God has promised towards us. Now there's a very interesting statement here in verse 15. A question often is asked, how were the people saved under the old covenant system? How was it that individuals were going to be saved? Christ did not come and die until some 1500 years after the old covenant itself was enacted through Moses. How did the people be how were the people saved? Verse 15 tells us, it says, Therefore Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You say, how were those under the old covenant saved? The same way that we are saved, by the shed blood of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that anyone could ever be saved is not by works of righteousness, it's not by fulfilling the law, it's not by doing what someone tells you to do, but rather it is through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which has enacted the new covenant which God gave to His people. In a sense, we can say that the old covenant people were saved on credit, namely that God knew that there would come a time when the Lamb would be slain. As we know, God who is outside of time has said the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And so as God was seeing these individuals sinning and constantly sinning and constantly offering these worthless sacrifices to them, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, God was taking their sacrifices on credit. He was saying, one day my son will come and he will sacrifice himself once and for all, and that will be how I will give the remission of sins to these individuals. You see, the Old Covenant was never given by God to bring about forgiveness of sins. It was never given for that. No one was ever going to be saved by the Old Covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Why then the law? It was added because of sin, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Later he will say it was our schoolmaster. He says, Paul says in Galatians 3, later on, I think it's verse 25, he says, you people didn't know how to live with your sin that you had. You were, you were slaves to sin. And until God put His Spirit upon you, you would not be able to reject this sin that so often was entangling you. And so the covenant was put in place in order that it would be your schoolmaster until Christ would come and you would receive the promised eternal inheritance, the salvation of your souls, and also you would receive the deposit towards your inheritance, the Holy Spirit, who would give us the ability to resist the temptations of the flesh. Now someone might say to me then, well, why did God have all of the people of Israel perform those sacrifices? Why would God have them do that? All of the blood that was shed. All of the animals that were killed. Why not just give them the promise and then have them live by faith in that promise? Why require all of these sacrifices? Well, God required these sacrifices, as we know and as I have said, in order that it would be these individual schoolmasters until Christ Himself would come. And on top of that, God required these sacrifices in order that they would be an act of faith unto God showing that it was God alone who could bring about the promised forgiveness of their sins. You see, God, when He gave the law, before He gave the law, He promised that He would send the promised eternal inheritance who would save these people from their sins, and that they would be saved not on the basis of their works, but rather on the basis of their faith. God never said they were going to be saved by the old covenant. He promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that he would be saved by his faith. He was justified by his faith, not because he was circumcised, not because he had done any of that. You see, the sacrificial system was put in place to both point to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and also to provide a covering for the sin of the people until Christ would come and wash their sins all away by taking upon them His own sins. You say, why the old covenant? Why? Because it pointed to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, and it was a way in which God said He would cover sins for a time, only for them to be reopened up and poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins in that once and for all event on that day at Calvary. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we read of the law that it is a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, and it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You see, the bringing about of the new covenant was necessary in order that God could bring about the promised forgiveness of sins. To do away with the old covenant, which was only a schoolmaster until Christ would come, it was necessary and only necessary for Christ to die on the cross for our sins to bring about this promised new covenant. Now, this goes into great detail in verse 16 to verse 17. He says, "...for where a will is involved or a covenant, the death of the one who made it must be established." For a, where a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. The author of Hebrews says it's quite simple here. In order for this new covenant to be brought about, someone needs to die. In order for a covenant to be enacted, blood needs to be shed. Therefore, Christ had to die on the cross for your sins in order that the new covenant would be brought about and the promises would be able to be enacted on your behalf. I have a dad, I'm sure many of us have parents. My dad may have a will for me. My dad is going to bequeath that benefits of that will to me at a later time, not when he lives, but rather when he dies. Therefore, it is of necessity that everyone realize that a will cannot be brought about until that person who has testified to that will himself would die. And so what the author of Hebrews says, it was necessary for Christ to die because the will could not have been brought about unless he died. The, the covenant could not have been ratified unless it was sealed with blood. And for anyone who denies this, need only look at how God has always dealt with His people. Not, not only that, that has God always dealt in this way with His people, but this is how even common man deals with individuals, with their covenants and with their wills in which they enact. You see, it should not come as a surprise to anyone that Jesus Himself had to die or that God was unjust in pouring out His wrath upon His Son for the forgiveness of sins because this is how God has always dealt with sin. In order to ratify any covenant, in order to bring about any will, God always ratified it through the shed blood of an unblemished sacrifice. In the Abrahamic covenant, what happened to Abraham when God made the Abrahamic covenant with him? He had Abraham; he put him under uh, the divine anesthetic. Right? He went to sleep, and God Himself came and walked through that, that barrier which He had set up with the slain animal sacrifices in order that the inauguration of the Abrahamic covenant would be brought to pass. And also, we read here in verse twenty or verse eighteen to verse twenty-two that under the old covenant system, it was not inaugurated without blood. It was a bloody mess. There was blood everywhere when the the old covenant was brought about. Therefore, no one should think that when the new covenant would be inaugurated that would happen any other way. There needed to be shed blood. We read of this, and the example really is taken from Exodus chapter 19 all the way to verse 24, but it's just summarized here in these four verses. He says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. You see, what we note here as the author of Hebrews takes the individuals back to the old covenant system of works, he says, this was inaugurated by blood. Now again, I mentioned the narrative covers a number of chapters in the book of Exodus, but ultimately it was this. God gave the covenant to Noah, or Noah, to, to Moses. Moses brought it down from Mount Sinai. The people said, we will do all that this law is commanded, and in order that this law would be able to be inaugurated, they shed the blood of an innocent uh, of an innocent animal, they mixed it with hyssop, they mixed it with wool, they put a little water in it, and he sprinkled it on the book of the law, he sprinkled it on the people, he sprinkled it on the vestments, he sprinkled it on the uh, uh, the uh, the things in which the tabernacle, in which would dwell in the tabernacle, blood was just sprinkled on everything in order that the law would be able to be brought into effect. And so, therefore, no one should be surprised that God would require a sacrifice in order for the new covenant to be brought about. To the Jew or the Gentile, the cross of Christ should not be folly, but rather they should realize that this is how God has always brought about His covenants. You see, God Himself, as He made this covenant which said there would come a day when total forgiveness of sins would be granted to God's people, He is a God who keeps His promises. And in order for His promise to be brought about, it needed to be brought about in the same way in which His promises were always brought to completion, and that is with the shed blood of a spotless, perfect, unblemished lamb. In the old covenant system, they had these animals who were sacrificed, and these animals were sacrificed constantly in order that the remission of sins would be able to be brought about, only it covered their sin. But when Christ came, the remission of sins was once and for all. Now, people often think at this point that Christ himself had to be a victim. You think about God, the Father, and he says that this is going to come about. I have made this covenant. I have willed that I am going to redeem fallen humanity. The Son of God, God the Son, and the, and the, the, the plan and the counsel of our triune God is this idea that God the Father says, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. There's no way out. You're going to do this as, as our, tri- our triune God is talking amongst himself. We think that Christ was somehow this, uh, this um Scapegoater, this individual who, just, who was just thrown into place and didn't want to do it and didn't want to, to be sacrificed by God. But the reality is, is that Christ was a willing substitute. Christ was a willing participant in bringing about this promised new covenant. If you read in just a few chapters over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 to verse 10, we read, consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. the Father and the Son having a a conversation with one another here as it is told to us uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5. Christ said unto the Father, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. You see, as we think about why was it necessary that, that Christ would have to die, certainly God the Father ordained it, but God the Son was our willing participant He knew that there was nothing that we could ever do in order that we would be able to be brought into the total forgiveness of our sins. And so our great Savior, God the Son, took on flesh in order that He could be made like us in order to offer up Himself in order to bring about the new covenant promise that God had given to the people of Israel. This is an amazing, amazing, amazing truth. It was necessary that Jesus would have to come and die, and yet Jesus was a willing participant. The one who was with the Father from before the foundations of the world, the one who we read is the preeminent one, chose to take on flesh in order that he could be our substitute and offer up himself to God to bring about the promised plan of forgiveness of sins. Now, The second point that we lead into with that is, was this sacrifice effectual? Was Christ effective in what He set out to do? Or did Christ die in vain, as some might say? You see, often these people have this idea that that Christ's sacrifice was not enough. They reason, no way one man could offer up himself for the sins of the whole world. There's no way that this could actually happen. There's no way that one person could appease a holy and a righteous God, and yet that is exactly what has happened in the cross of Christ You say, how effectual was the death on the cross for our sins that Jesus paid on our behalf? Well, look to 23 verse 28 in Hebrews chapter 9 to see the effectualness of it. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. "'Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly "'as the high priest enters the holy places "'every year with blood not his own. "'For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly "'since the foundation of the world. "'But as it is, he has appeared once and for all "'at the end of the ages to put away sin "'by the sacrifice of himself. "'And just as it is appointed for man to die once "'and after that comes judgment, "'so Christ, having been offered once "'to bear the sins of many, "'will appear a second time, "'not to deal with sin, "'but to save those who are eagerly waiting.'" for him. You say how effectual was Christ's death? The author of Hebrews makes it clear. It was a once and for all sacrifice. Now to us this may not seem of a great significance. We look at the cross somewhat uh, with somewhat of a superficiality. We know the cross, we know why Christ died on the cross for our sins, but we do not realize the, the, uh, the burden that the sacrificial system was on the people of Israel. We do not realize the ever-present hope for the Israelites where one day God would promise and fulfill that promise to remember His people's sins no more through the sacrifice of His promised Messiah. We do not realize how much the people of Israel were burdened under the weight of the sacrifices of their sins or for their sins. And so when Christ came to redeem man from their sins in a once and for all sacrifice, this was great news to the people of Israel. And it ought to be good news for us We must never trivialize the cross. We must never look at the cross and say, oh yeah, Christ died on the cross for my sins and now I'm saved now. We must never view it as such because what Christ did in a once and for all sacrifice was never able to be accomplished in the millions upon millions of sacrifices that the people of Israel offered to God during the 1500 years under which they were under God's old covenant system. You see, to the Jew, this question plays a significant importance, and I want to draw this out for us also so that we can see this for our lives. You see, under the old covenant system, sacrifices were the ever-present reality of the people's lives. Sacrifices were continually offered because the people were continually sinning, and the reason that these sacrifices were to be continually offered was because they were incapable of appeasing God's wrath. As I've mentioned, they've only covered sin. And so what these people would have to do is they would constantly have to go into the temple and bring their sacrifice to the priest, and the priest would have to take the offering, and he would have to sacrifice that offering, and he'd have to pour the blood on the altar of sacrifice, and the person would be able to have their sins covered for a moment in time. But then what would happen? They would sin again, and so they'd have to bring another sacrifice, and day in and day out, it was this repeated task where people had to continuously offer their sacrifices unto God for their Sins, And even more than this, what we note is that they knew as they were offering these sacrifices that they were ineffectual for bringing about the total forgiveness of sins. You say, how do they know that? Well, because they constantly had to do it. If these were able to forgive sins, they would not have to have been having having to have been offered every single day of these people's lives. You see in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 to verse 3 what he says is the sacrificial system only served as a reminder that these people themselves were sinners. He says otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. They just knew they were sinners. There was no way around this fact. They were sinners. They had to offer up their sacrifices to God and they were constantly separated from God because of their sinfulness. This was a a, a terrible burden for the people of God, for the Israelites, constantly. Could you imagine that every day you wake up? I've sinned again, got to bring this sacrifice. And then you say, oh, the Day of Atonement's coming up this year. This is the one day a year where there was the Yom Kippur, the promised day of forgiveness, where God would atone for the people of Israel's sins. But what would happen is, well, we got to do the Day of Atonement again again next year. It was just this constant reminder that they were sinners separated from the presence of God. And not only were the sacrifices this constant reminder of that, but also it was in the fact in how the temple itself was set up that they realized that they were separated from God. The temple, in, a, in how it was set up, had the outer courts, it had the uh, inner courts, it had the holy place, and it had the most holy place. And in the holy place was where the priests would offer up sacrifices on the altar uh, that, that God had given to these individuals. But in the most holy place, this was where the presence of God dwelt, only it was covered by a veil. And one time a year could the priest enter into this place, one time a year, and only for a brief moment, lest they find themselves in the presence of God, uh, polluted by their sin, and God would judge them immediately because of their sinfulness against them. These people constantly live with this reality that they were separated from God because their sins had not been totally forgiven. They were separated from God. They had to perpetually offer their sins unto God. You see, as it says throughout verse 23 into verse 28, there is this fact that every year the high priest had to offer up himself, or offer up sacrifices, not only for the people of Israel, but also for himself, since he himself was beset by sin. He would go into the throne room of God, or the, uh, the uh, copy of the throne room of God, uh, the most holy place which we there because he knew that if he was in the presence of God for too long, he himself would be killed by God because God will not be in the presence of sin. You see, Israel longed for the day when sacrifices would cease and God would remember their sins no more as promised in the new covenant. And again, we have not come out of a sacrificial system, and so this idea that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all may seem rather insignificant towards us, but in the promised plan of God, this eternal, once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the most glorious gift that God could have ever given to his people. And note that this was not a sacrifice which the people had to make on their their own behalf, but God inserted Himself in their place and offered up Himself as the sacrifice for sins in order that it would be able to be once and for all. You see, the point that the author of Hebrews is making here concerning the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, sacrifices have ceased. God's wrath is appeased. His fury is quenched. When Christ went to the cross as the atonement for our sins, he went as the perfect, eternal Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The need for sacrifices was over. It was done. Never again would there need to be a sacrifice. God's wrath was appeased in the sacrifice of his Son. It was once and for all. You say, how do we know that this is the case? How do we know that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all? How do we know that, you know, it's just not something that people say to make themselves feel good? Obviously, Christ died on the cross. Obviously, He was buried in the grave. Obviously, there was a sacrifice that was made. How does one know that it was effectual? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us a couple of reasons here. Verse 23 to 24, he says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Ultimately, what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, Under the old covenant, the people made sacrifices in the copy of the heavenly things. It resembled God's presence. It resembled where God himself resided, but it was only a copy. These priests were making sacrifices in a copy of the heavenly things. When Christ made his sacrifice, he walked into the very throne room of God and offered up himself as the sacrifice for the people's Sins. This is a profound truth. Christ Himself went into the very throne room of God. The eternal Son of God walked into the throne room of God and offered up His blood of the sacrifice in order that the wrath of God would be appeased for the forgiveness of our sins. This is what the text here is stating to us. That when Christ died on the cross for our sins, He Himself went into the very throne room of God, the presence of God, to be the forerunner on our behalf, to lead us into the presence of God by bringing into the presence of God a perfect sacrifice for sins. As I mentioned to you, there was only one time a year when these high priests could enter into the most holy place. And what they would do is they would tie this rope around these high priests. I mentioned it in a Wednesday night Bible study. They tied this rope around these high priests because they were concerned that the high priest would enter into there in an unworthy manner and they would die And the people, if the high priest died, didn't want to leave him there, but they also didn't want to go in there and they themselves die. and so they would tie this rope around the priest in order that if he did die, they could drag him out of there and then give the burial for him. This was not so for Christ. Christ did not go into the copy of the heavenly things. Christ did not have to worry if God the Father would accept his sacrifice. Rather, Christ walked into the very throne room in the presence of God and offered up himself as the eternal sacrifice for for our sins. How do we know that Christ's sacrifice was effectual? He did not offer it in the copy of the heavenly things, but rather he offered it in the very throne room of our great God. This is indeed a profound, profound truth, and yet it is what the Scripture presents to us as fact. You say, how do we know that God accepted Christ's sacrifice, that the Father accepted the sacrifice of his Son? Well, look to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about Christ. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the point He's making. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How do we know that God accepted Christ's sacrifice? When Christ entered into the very throne room of His Father, Christ sat down, therefore signifying a completed work. There were not even chairs in the temple. The priests could never sit down because they were constantly offering sacrifices for sins. When Christ entered into the throne room of God, he sat down signifying a completed work never having to be completed ever again. You see, when Christ sat down, He stayed there. And as Christ is seated at the right hand of the the Father, of God the Father, what He is doing now on our behalf as our great high priest is told to us in chapter 7, verse 25 of Hebrews. It says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, what the author of Hebrews says Christ is doing now is that not only when He offered up the sacrifice for the sins of the people, He went down and sat at the right hand of the Father, but now He ever lives in order to make intercession for us, in order to bring us to the presence of God, in order that we would be able to enter into the very throne room of God, which no one, no one, absolutely no one could enter into because if they were to enter into that throne, throne room, they would have been damned to an eternity in hell for being in the very presence of our holy God. You see, when Christ offered up Himself to the Father, He went into the presence of God on our behalf and remains there until this day, seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf. His sacrifice was the final sacrifice because He Himself not only appeased God's wrath towards sin, but also totally removed the effects of sin. And if you're not yet convinced here, the author hammers his point down a little bit further in verse 25 and verse 26. He says, "'Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, once and for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin—or he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself.'" In effect, he says, If Christ's sacrifice were not sufficient, what would need to happen would be the same thing that was happening under the old covenant system. Namely, that Christ would have constantly had to continue to offer up Himself unto God for the remission of our sins. But as it is, this is not the case. You see, he says, you know, it's been 35 some odd years since Christ himself died on the cross for our sins. The book of Hebrews written sometime around the year 65 AD, give or take a few years. The author of Hebrews says, it's been 35 years since Christ was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. Were his sacrifice in the same line as the old covenant sacrifices that were offered under the Levitical priesthood, Christ would have to be perpetually offering up himself. And what the author of Hebrews is making clear to these people is that Christ is not actually doing that. Rather, Christ is seated, therefore He's not offering up any sacrifice. He Himself is not doing anything towards bringing about the forgiveness of sins. Rather, when He entered the throne room of God, God allowed for Him to be seated at His right hand until He would come to bring us to Himself. You see, if Christ was to have to be perpetually offered just as the Day of Atonement sacrifices were offered, not only could the author of Hebrews say, look back these 35 years, Christ would have to do this, but also from before the foundation of the world, Christ would have had to have been offered up as a sacrifice for every single sin that every single person ever did in their lives. He says it would be a perpetual offering. Christ would constantly have his blood shed. There would be blood everywhere, and Christ would constantly, constantly find himself having his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But as it is, he says, when Christ entered the throne room of God, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You say, how do we know that this sacrifice was once and for all? Sure, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but what did Christ say on the cross? Did he say, oh, I've got to do this again tomorrow. Or, oh, I've got to do this again for the rest of my life or for the rest of my eternal life. No, he said, it is finished and he gave up the ghost. He knew that his sacrifice was finished because he knew that the wrath of God was no longer being poured out on him for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, Christ could say it is finished, and Christ, when he offered up his once and for all sacrifice, entered into the throne room of God and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in order to bring about the salvation for all who believe. Now, there is one other point that the author makes here. You know, if you still don't get it, there's one final point the author of Hebrews makes here about the eternality of Christ's sacrifice. He says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In verse 27, the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is this. He says, Humans are only destined to die once. Human beings will only die once. Therefore, Christ only died once. He's not going to die again. In fact, he cannot die again because when he was raised from the grave, he was raised from the grave with an incorruptible body that will never perish, that shall never pass away. Therefore, he will never be able to offer up himself as a sacrifice ever again because he cannot die again. He ever lives to intercede on the behalf of the people of God. You see, Christ lives forever, and as He lives, He has promised His return will come. And the author of Hebrews says, because His sacrifice for sin is completed, when He returns for you, it's not going to be to deal with sin. He's not going to sacrifice Himself again, but rather He is going to bring you the promised inheritance. He will save you completely from your Sins. This is the truth in which is presented to us here tonight in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to verse 28. Christ had to die in order to bring about the promised plan of redemption. He had to die in order that his blood, which was shed, would be able to inaugurate the new covenant, and he had to offer up himself as the perfect, spotless, eternal Lamb of God in order that God would receive his sacrifice for sins once and for all, no longer require a sacrifice for sins, and allow for his plan of redemption. To be completed. You see, no longer through Christ's sacrifice are we separated from God. Christ entered into the throne room of God to lead us with him. There is no longer a chasm between us and God like there was in the old covenant system. Rather, those of us by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ are able to enter boldly into the very throne room of God as the new covenant system has now been inaugurated and Christ now mediates it on our behalf. You see, for those who believe now are known by God and also know God and have received total forgiveness for their sins. No sacrifice that we could ever offer would be enough, nor is it even necessary. You see, Jesus paid it all on Calvary. Church, I see two ways to apply this great truth. Two ways to apply this great truth. First, if you have yet to believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there really is only one thing for you to do. Realize that God has accepted the sacrifice of His Son as the only means of forgiveness for your sins. You are a sinner. You are damned to an eternity in hell apart from the redeeming power of Christ's sacrifice which was paid on your behalf the only thing that you need to do upon hearing the truth of Christ's cross that he himself went to in order to shed his blood to bring about the new covenant and also to offer up himself for the etern- eternal forgiveness of your sins, the only thing that you need to do is repent of your sins towards God and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have believed in what Christ himself has done, those of us who are Christ's, what we must do what we must recognize from this, what we must do is we must heed the words of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3. We must not neglect this great salvation that we have received. We must not neglect the great salvation that Christ himself has purchased on our behalf. You say someone says why? You know why should I not neglect this salvation? What do people do when they find out that they're saved? That they no longer have to be worried about the wrath of God? That they no longer stand condemned before God? What do people do? Well, they say the price has been paid. I ought to live it up now until Christ brings me home. I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm good to go. I'll just continue to live in sin. The author of Hebrews says, do not neglect this salvation that Christ himself has purchased on your behalf. Do not neglect the sacrifice of your Savior by living a life that is totally contrary to to what God himself is calling for you to do. And you say, how can I live my life now in order that I do not neglect this great salvation? Turn to First Peter where we close as we heed the words of the apostle Peter given to the church as it was scattered all throughout Asia. As he called for them to respond to the sacrifice of Christ, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, all the way to verse 19. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, you ought to live your lives in the fear of God now, knowing of the precious price that was paid on your behalf. Church, we must not neglect this for us. And what this means for us in our daily lives is no longer living a life of self-righteousness, which says, I do these things, God's gonna accept me. God has already accepted you, not because of who you are, but because of what Christ Himself has done. Church, if we are to live out the call, the, the, the this promised inheritance that we have even now in the flesh, we must live to Christ totally, realizing that it is by his stripes we are healed, that there is nothing that we could ever have done to bring about the forgiveness of our sins, but rather it is through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Church, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful night that we have to be able to gather together on this Good Friday evening. Lord, may may we never forget the significance of this day. God, we know that uh, this was a once and for all sacrifice, and because of that, we may only deem it necessary to look at once and then move on to bigger and better things in our own mind. But God, may we never, may we never lose sight of the significance of the cross. May we never lose sight of the the, the precious, precious, precious gift that Jesus Himself gave for us as He went to the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God, we always remember the mercy that you have showed to us in that while you are a just and a holy God and could have immediately destroyed us at the first sense of sin in our lives or in our hearts, God, in your great mercy, you made a way that we could be redeemed. Jesus, we thank you that you took on our place, that you were our substitute, that you were the one who brought about the new covenant, that you were the one who offered up yourself as a sacrifice for our sins. God, we thank you for this precious, precious gift that you have given to us. And may we live out our lives in the reality of this truth every single day as you have committed us to do. ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.